scripture reading today is from Luke chapter 12, verses 4 through 12. I'll be reading from the NIV version. I'll give you a few moments if you want to look it up in your Bible. Again, Luke chapter 12, verses 4 through 12. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after the body has been killed, has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. I tell you, whoever publicly acknowledges me before others, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But whoever disowns me before others will be disowned before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But anyone who blasphemies against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. When you are brought before synagogues, Rulers and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. This is the word of the Lord. We get situated here. Um, just a note, because um, I know there are a few folks that love to follow along since we preach through books and. Um, and I've wondered, first of all, we skipped a few verses this morning. That's going to be not uncommon for the next few weeks. We're going to keep preaching through Luke, but because of the fact that um, I'm not preaching through 12 chapters in the next couple of months, uh, I'm going to have the freedom to kind of maybe skip over a few sections as we preach through the next few chapters. But the plan for preaching is to just keep doing that. And in the last few weeks that we're out here, I am going to just do a special series where, yeah, we kind of just share some final thoughts and express appreciation and things for you guys. But for now, I like to preach through books, and so that's what we're going to keep on doing. Let's pray. Father God, as we are attentive now to your word, I pray that you would speak to us through it, although we're sinful people, that you would use me as an instrument to speak it, even though I am a sinful man. I pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, who loves to save sinners. Amen. So are we fearful people? Are we fearful people? To answer that, first we need to answer a deeper question, which is, what is fear? Because I think that that is actually a lot harder thing to pin down than we appreciate. What is fear? There are those moments of abject fear, of terror that you feel, right? When, like, that car is merging over in front of you and doesn't seem to see you, or when you're at the grocery store and suddenly you can't find one of your kids. That rush of adrenaline fear. There is this sort of unreasonable fear of just feeling insecure at certain moments, like when you're laying in bed and you get up for like the fifth time to make sure that you locked the doors of your house because you keep hearing sounds even though you know that it's nothing. There is the kind of insecure fear you feel about certain parts of the future, like when you get that text message from a friend that says, hey, can we talk tomorrow? I need to talk to you about something. And you know that it's fine objectively, 
but what you actually feel in your heart is like, oh my goodness, what did I do? What's wrong? And you start running through all the terrible scenarios. There is the uncertainty about the future in general that we often feel fearful about, the way we, at least if you're like me, try to game out and strategize every possible thing that could happen so that you feel safe. There is fear of the world, that fear that's fed by the media and the internet, where even though we live in what is objectively the safest time and place in all of human history, we often feel this deep anxiety about, like, getting murdered and things like that. There is the social fear of insecurity and of worrying about what people think of us. There's that sort of just abstracted fear of anxiety and stress that gives some people high blood pressure. It's the reason that I have to wear mouth guards when I sleep at night because I grind my teeth from stress. There's fear that becomes an actual psychological disorder that people need treatment for and medicine and counseling for. 18% of Americans struggle with anxiety disorder, which is the single most common thing or most common mental health struggle in the country. Fear is a monster with a dozen different forms. It's not easy to kind of condense down to one thing. And the more we realize that, the more we're mindful of the fact that fear affects us, that we are often fearful in a lot of different ways. Which is, of course, an issue because Scripture calls us to not be afraid. I don't know that that's news to us. The Bible says, don't be afraid in various places. But just knowing that in itself often doesn't feel like much of a solution to those fears and anxieties that we feel. It's not actually that helpful just to say that. And you know that if you've ever tried to just stop doing something, right? Like being afraid. Like, like when you're laying awake at night and you're, you know, you're worrying about something and you just say, stop it. Stop worrying about that thing. It doesn't work. <laughs> and the reason it doesn't work is because what you then say is stop worrying about that thing that is really scary, that I don't have any control over, that I, you know, and it just spirals back into the fear again. In general, human beings don't, you can't just stop thinking about a thing by trying to stop thinking about it. And in Christianity in particular, you don't just stop doing something that's sinful by setting out to stop doing it. Instead, what we need, if we're going to not be afraid, is to replace it with something good. The way you stop thinking about something is by thinking about something else. The way we stop thinking about, or stop sinning is by replacing it with goodness. And in particular, with God and the greatness of God. And that is as true for our fears as it is for anything else. When scripture calls us not to be afraid, it almost always instead calls us in different ways to recognize the greatness of God as the solution to our fears. So here's the plan this morning. As Jesus talks here about fear in different ways, we're going to talk about God's greatness and how it addresses our fears. I'm going to do that in terms of giving us this other thing that we should turn to instead. And we're going to do that in two ways. First, I think Jesus would want us to see from what we read this morning that God's great worthiness delivers us from fear. God's great worthiness. But to see that in the text, we have to go on a little bit of a journey because that's maybe not obvious. Start at the beginning of our reading in verse 4. Jesus says, I tell you, my friends... Do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. 
Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. So the Bible actually makes this contrast a bunch of different times throughout it. Jesus makes it several different times between fearing the world, fearing people and things in the world, and fearing God, that you have an option between one or the other. So it's a familiar contrast to us, but it can also sound off-putting, I think, when we hear it. We don't see in an obvious way how it's supposed to help us, right? Because what we hear is sort of like, oh, you think you're afraid. You know what you should really be afraid of is that God could throw you into hell. Like, that doesn't feel like it's actually going to address our anxiety. So to see what Jesus is doing, we need to first actually talk about something else. We need to talk about how idolatry works. How idolatry works. And so idolatry is the worship of something that isn't God as God, right? And it's not always obvious worship. It's not always statues, but it's taking created things and elevating them to a place of ultimate importance that properly belongs to God. Taking anything in the world and making it the object of our hope and trust and faith in the way that God alone should be. But the thing about idolatry is that you don't make something an idol out of nowhere. You don't wake up one morning and say, you know what, I've been worshiping God, but I think I'm going to worship money instead. Totally plausible, makes sense. I'm going to just decide to do that. That's not how it works. Instead, before we replace God with an idol, what we almost always do first is replace the biblical hell with some other hell. Now, hell is a hard topic, and we're not going to dig into it too much this morning, but at its root in Scripture, hell— in scripture is about separation from God. It includes, yeah, facing the consequences of our evil and the hurts that we do and stuff, but at root, hell is about being separate from God, losing out on knowing and being in the presence of God. When, when, when God's, in Matthew 25 and other places where we see Jesus' picture of the final judgment, the, the most chilling words are the first, depart from me. That's the biblical hell. And what happens is that we replace that ultimate hell of being absent from God, of separation from God, with something else. The hell of being friendless, or the hell of being helpless, or the hell of being insignificant, or just the hell of having to feel the despair and things that are in our hearts. That becomes the thing that we fear most. That becomes the hell that we end up fearing. And as a consequence, we worship idols, we worship false gods, to try to save ourselves from that hell. And let me, this is actually, once you understand this, it helps explain something about the psychology of how idolatry works. Because if you don't get that, like, here's the thing. On the one hand, when I think about myself as a young person, um, I absolutely worshipped the idol of wanting other people to respect me and think I was great a lot. Like, you know, that would be one of the things that I feel like was a driving idol in my heart of really wanting people to look at me a certain way and notice me and respect me in certain ways. Um, and at the same time, I recognize there's other idols. For example, again, I'm thinking of me at like 20, right? Like money, I don't know that I was really much of an idol for me at that age because I didn't really get it, right? You know, I didn't have all these needs. I didn't spend a lot of time thinking about it. I just made sure I had enough in the bank that I could go have dinner with my friends that night. And, you know, it wasn't a significant idol for me. But underlying the idolatry of people when I was at that point in my life was really, for me, the, the, the fear of the hell of being helpless, of being powerless. That was what I was doing as I've kind of reflected and come to know my own heart, that I 
one of the root things that I hate is the thought of being powerless and helpless, and so I was using people to try to make me feel significant and powerful and, you know, surround myself with people so that I felt like I would have help. Does that make sense? Now, here's the thing. At that age, other people were seeking the same idol of human approval, but they were doing it for other reasons. Does that make sense? They had other hells that they were ultimately afraid of, that they were worshiping that idol. But at the same time, now, I'm not old, but I'm, I'm not 20 anymore, right? I find that those idols I wrestle with in some ways change. That while it's not gone, I care significantly less about whether people respect and approve of me than I did when I was 20. And I wrestle significantly more with money, (laughs) the idol of money, because I have three kids and a mortgage and an IRA, and suddenly that's a thing that, you know, I find myself struggling with. But it's actually the same root fears that are still driving those things. I still don't want to feel helpless and don't want to feel powerless. It's just that my sense of which idols can feed and deliver me from that hell have changed. And I name all of that to say, you may well have a different matrix of idols and hells that are in play in your heart, but understanding that process in your heart is crucial, and it's understanding, and understanding it is crucial because all of us, on some level, do that. All of us have some things that we're ultimately afraid of, some hells in our heart. And the problem for all of us is this. If that hell that we're ultimately afraid of isn't the biblical hell, the beautiful thing about the biblical hell is that we have a way to truly escape it, to truly be delivered from it, right? As much as it's a hard thing for us to think about, eternal separation from God, because of the work of Jesus, we have a sure, certain, guaranteed salvation from it, right? We trust in his name, we're covered by his blood, we're received into God's family, and we do not need to fear that hell anymore. But those other hells, our idols can never actually deliver us from those hells. They can never actually give us that kind of true and certain salvation. No matter how many people like you, no matter how much money you have, right, you can't escape your ultimate helplessness. You can't change human hearts. You can't protect the people around you from their frailty. You can't protect yourself from your ultimate mortality, even if you're the richest, most respected person in the world. Idols always put us on a treadmill of fear, where they come to us and they promise us salvation from whatever that hell is that we're afraid of, a salvation that they never deliver, and so we keep on chasing them and keep on bleeding for them, even though we never actually find release from them. I was was thinking about a way to kind of illustrate that. The one that I kept thinking about, and I hope this isn't controversial to people, but it was because of this relative that I have in particular. What I was thinking about is, again, I'm not that old a guy, but I've been alive through six election cycles now in the United States, right? Six, I mean, I... I've been alive for more than six, but I've been old enough to kind of pay attention and follow that, you know, for, for six presidential election cycles. And man, this, not in a partisan way, everybody, if you ever watch any political campaign, that idea of we're going to give you a hell to be afraid of, and then we're going to offer you salvation is like every political ad ever, right? Right? Like, you know, watch the ad where it's like the other candidate, right? And it's like scenes of, you know, the Holocaust and nuclear explosions, and then our candidate, right? And, you know, it's blue skies and bald eagles. Fundamentally, what they're doing is they're saying, like, here is this hell that we're going to give you this fear about, right? That, that American prosperity is going to end and we're going to turn into this post-apocalyptic place. And then here is this heaven, this salvation, this savior that's going to come rescue you for it. And of course, the thing that strikes me in general, as I paid attention and watch both parties regularly paint that picture, is that 
that never comes true for either side, right? Like, I have political opinions, and there are certainly periods of American history over the last few decades that I like better and less, but it's neither become that hell, nor has that salvation ever happened, regardless of how the elections turn out. But I was thinking about that because I have this certain relative who I feel like every time I see him, he's very invested in that. And for, for, for like the last 20 years, we've had these political conversations where he just has terror in his eyes because he so believes that, you know, that everything is about to fall apart. And he so believes that that salvation is about to come. And that was true 20 years ago, and that's true today. And I just, he's stuck in that treadmill, right? right? It doesn't matter who wins and who loses. He's always caught in that place of fear. And I use that because that's a, an easy cultural example. But what I want to suggest is that is how fear works for all of us. How the idolatry of, you know, the way we look to idols to rescue us from their hells, that's how it works for all of us. The only way to be free from our idols is to turn to the living God. But the only way we'll do it is to recognize that we first need to turn from those hells that we create in this world have a proper fear of that true hell, a proper fear of losing God and relationship with God, and then receiving him as our Savior in that. That's why I think Jesus, he talks about fear, and then he suddenly, in verse 9, starts talking about apostasy, about turning away from the living God and denying him. If you pick up in there, I guess in verse 8, it says, And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Which is really another way of saying what we kind of just said. Jesus is saying either you will fear men in a way that cause you to lose out on God, or you will fear God in a way that might cost you the disapproval of human beings, but will allow you to ultimately receive God. And look, Jesus is giving a real warning in this part of the text, the ultimate danger of idolatry is that we're so busy trying to escape those other hells that we put ourselves in danger of a separation from God. Uh, that's why in verse 10 he talks about, he says, Everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And that can be a scary verse for us. And again, we're not going to dig into it super deeply that idea of the unforgivable sin, but very briefly, what Jesus is talking about there is unbelief and rejecting God. It's not sin in general, obviously. It's not even sin against God or blaspheming God in some abstract way, because he says, even those who blaspheme me, Jesus, the Son of God, right, will be forgiven. But the Holy Spirit is the one who gives faith and new life and salvation. And if we reject that offer of salvation— and we will ultimately face that. That's a real warning. But the bigger point behind it, and this is the point that I'm kind of trying to drive us towards, is this. If we take everything we've said, first, ultimately, hell means losing God and separation from God. And we should also maybe say, even though Jesus doesn't talk about here, that's heaven, the ultimate hope of heaven is gaining God and having God, right? I mean, if you're just in it, because you think heaven's about, like, harps and clouds, or even just about being healed and being with people you love, those harps and clouds don't happen. The other stuff are good things, but, but the hope of heaven is that we're in perfect communion with our creator God, which is to say the ultimate thing Jesus wants us to realize is the worth of knowing God. 
of being in communion with him. Jesus is saying that knowing God and belonging to God is so infinitely and ultimately valuable that fear in this world, the more we recognize his worth, will start to lose its power on us. Think about it like this. Imagine that you're thinking about your house catching on fire, which I know is a thing I've, several people I've known over the last few years have had to walk through in different ways. That's a scary thing. I mean, there are nights that I get worried and have to go make sure the space heater got turned off downstairs, right? Because I don't want, you know, I'm worried about the house catching fire. But as I've talked to different people who have had to walk through that experience, the thing that strikes me is that while it was a really scary experience for them, there's this moment that they tended to have where they know that their family is safe, right? Where they know that their spouse and their kids are safe and out of the house. And while it's still a hard and traumatic experience, in that moment in many ways, their fear kind of dissipates. Even though they're still confronting this scary thing of their house burning down, because they recognize that that is worth more, right? They, they, they have so much more worth invested in that, that they're able to face this other scary thing. God gives us himself in the gospel, and he is the one of ultimate worth. The more we recognize that, the more we recognize that the thing we should truly fear is losing God, and that God and Jesus has given us himself, the more we're free from those other fears. I like how the old Scottish pastor Robert Layton puts it. He says, I would rather be the poorest believer than the greatest king on earth. How can you frighten him? Bring him word his estate is ruined, yet my inheritance is safe, says he. Your family or dear friend is dead, yet my father lives. You yourself must die, but then I go home to my father and to my inheritance. Because that hope is attached to the ultimate worth of God, and of God's presence and our inheritance of him, the fears of this world start to lose their power. So God's great worthiness delivers us from our fear. And then the other thing I think God wants us to see is that, or Jesus wants us to see, is that God's great care delivers us from our fear as well. That's the other thing in this text. God's great care for us. First, Jesus reminds us that God knows and values us. If you look at verse 6, he says, Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than sparrows. God does not know the world the way I think you would... I think we imagine that God knows the world, like, through a telescope or a satellite. Like, he's in some control room somewhere, and he's got, like, the map of the earth, and then he's just, like, you know, like, enhanced on this one area, and he zooms in and sees it for a minute and then zooms back out. God does not know the world like that. Instead, he knows every place, everything, every moment, perfectly giving it his full attention all of the time. Rather than just sort of like zooming in on one thing occasionally, God is watching. He knows intimately and fully every moment of our lives and the flight of every bird in the air, as Jesus says here, and every blade of grass and every little speck of dust floating in a sunbeam, that he is, in a sense, fully attentive to all of those things. So God knows us in our uncertain moments, and he knows our anxious thoughts and our hurts and our joys. He is attentive to them, and more than that, God values us in them. He 
knows us in a way that expresses his love and value for us. We should actually name this for a minute. When we think about the idea that God values us, why? Why does God value you? How you answer that question is actually really important to how you handle fear. Because there's actually two different reasons things can be valuable to us. One of those reasons is its usefulness. There's sort of usefulness value, right? So the reason my can opener is valuable to me is because it can open cans. And um, even in a more abstract way, like a painting, right, that I see, maybe that I like buy, is valuable to me because it makes me feel a certain way. You know, its beauty appeals to me. And the thing to understand about usefulness value is that for those things, if they lose their usefulness, then they lose their value to you, right? If the can opener stops opening cans, I'm not going to keep it around, or I'm going to throw it in the trash. I mean, even the painting, if it stops making me feel those things, if I stop finding it beautiful, it's going to get stuck in the back of a closet and forgotten. But there's another kind of value, and that is what I think of as costliness value. Not meaning that it's really expensive, but meaning that we value it because we have, in a sense, paid or invested ourselves for it. And the easiest example of that is trophies and medals, right? Inherently, a medal is just like a lump of metal or plastic, if they're being cheap or whatever, right? It has very little inherent worth. But when you look at that metal, right, you're going to hang that on your wall, even where you wouldn't hang, like, expensive jewelry or something. And the reason for that is because what you're really valuing about that metal is, like, the marathon that you ran to win it, right? Or the, the months of training to, to engage in that competition. And that's also true of, like, I mean, I mentioned paintings, but it's different if it's, like, a thing you painted or that one of your kids painted for you, right? You're, you're not viewing that in terms of its usefulness to you. You're viewing it in terms of the investment and cost of the person in it. That's what makes it valuable. So when we talk about God valuing us, I love the beginning of Psalm 8. Uh, You you can flip there if you want, and this is spoilers for Bible study tonight if you're joining us. But Psalm 8 begins by proclaiming God's majesty, and then it picks up in verse 3 and says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place, What is man that you're mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? So he says, when I look at the galaxies and stars and stuff, what are human beings? And his point there is about usefulness value that we don't have any, right? That that God, in terms of our use to him, he, he could do everything he wants in the universe without us, right? He spoke and galaxies happened. He doesn't need us. He, he doesn't value us because we're really useful to him. He can open the can himself. But keep reading, verse 5. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet. So the psalmist says, in terms of our usefulness, we're useless. Yet you have done this. And then what he starts talking about is God's work of creation. A bunch of stuff that God did in making us, right? In terms of giving us this place a little lower than the angels and giving us dominion over the rest of the world. It's almost saying God values us because he chose to invest himself, his value, in us. We're valuable to God because he made us, and of course, on this side of the cross also because of the cost he chose to pay for us in Jesus. If we believe we're valuable because of our usefulness to God, 
and that's something that we can lose. But if we recognize that we're valuable simply because of the fact that God chose to pay for and invest in us, that is something we cannot lose because it doesn't rest on us, and that is a huge blessing in the midst of fear. Because the thing about fear is that even if it starts off as something where you're afraid of something out there, on some level it always ends up becoming fear about yourself. Insecurity about yourself, whether you're strong enough, whether you're worthy enough, whether you're lovable, you start wrestling with this sense that you yourself are insecure. And that's when fear often becomes really powerful in our lives. And the sweet promise of God's care and value for us is that it does not rest on us. God knows and values us simply because he chose to make and save us, which means that when that fear whispers that we're not worthy, that we're not strong, we can simply say that doesn't matter because God values us anyway. So God knows and values us. And then Jesus also shows God's care in that God sovereignly provides for us. God in his sovereign power, his perfect power, provides for us. So Jesus gives a specific situation in verse 11. He says, When they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Now, Jesus here, remember, he's speaking specifically about facing persecution, and he's giving a specific example, and some Christians take this too generally. This does not mean you shouldn't ever think about what you're going to say in any situation, and it doesn't mean you shouldn't, like, study and try to learn and be prepared for things. I mean, I actually, I, I've known a couple of pastors in different traditions who take this verse to mean you shouldn't, like, prepare a sermon, you should just get up and talk, and one, you can tell— <laughs> But two, um, that's not what Jesus is talking about, right? But instead, what Jesus is saying is um, when you're in that moment, right, where you're beyond yourself, where, where you don't know what to say, where you're facing the opposition of the world, God will powerfully provide by his Holy Spirit to carry you through that moment and allow you to continue to testify to him. Which is an illustration of the general principle that God is in sovereign control of the world and our lives, And he will provide what we need. He's in sovereign control of the world and our lives, and he will provide what we need. Now that said, we need to be clear about what we're saying in that. Because there's a way that you can say that, you know, that God's got this, God's in control, that doesn't—it's kind of weak, right? But then there's another way that is really deep and powerful. And what I mean by that is that, look, God is in control, but hard things will still happen in our lives. God is in control, but we will wrestle at times with what happens. God is in control, but we will face suffering and pain and loss. And so don't—there are Christians that seem to have the, like, you just let Jesus take the wheel and nothing bad will happen. And that's not what we mean, right? That's not what we're saying. But God is in control, and what that means is that he will supply what we need— And carry us through those things and to himself. That no matter what happens in life, Jesus will give us what we need to continue to have our faiths be intact. And to walk faithfully with him. And to arrive with him at the end. Not that he's in control in a sense that we won't face 
challenges in our lives. I mean, he's talking about them being dragged before the authorities facing persecution, but that God is in control in a way that he will give us what we need, even in those moments, to keep us close to him. I've always loved how John Calvin, the reformer, puts it. He says, Seeing that a pilot steers the ship in which we sail, who will never allow us to perish even in the midst of shipwrecks, there's no reason why our minds should be overwhelmed with fear and overcome with weariness. I love that God is the pilot that steers our ships, and even when there's shipwrecks, we will not perish, because he will keep and preserve us. And ultimately, that actually circles back to what we said earlier. Remember, we said we need to recognize God's worthiness because if our hope is ultimately in God and in his worth, then those fears of this world lose their power over us. This, then, is the assurance that because God values us and cares for us and because God is sovereignly in control of the world, if our hope is in him, he will keep us and carry us and give us himself. Give us the thing that we are hoping for, regardless of what life So to sum all that up, if you're a Christian and you confront fear, here are three certain promises that you can think about, right? That you can turn your heart towards. Three certain promises. One, that God will keep you. That he will seek and preserve and uphold and carry you through whatever fearful situations life brings. God will keep you. Two, That God will continue to work in you and grow you. We haven't dwelled on that this morning, but he will grow you to be more like Jesus, and he will draw you closer to himself. And three, that God will in the end bring you to himself. That by his good and strong arm, our pilot will steer us through the shipwrecks of this life and bring us home. And reminding ourselves of that fact, then, of those promises when we're afraid. It will begin to lose its grip on our hearts, and we will find ourselves more and more hoping in God. Let's pray. Father, I confess there are many anxieties and fears that I feel in my life, in the world. I know there are so many fears that we face. Some are, uh, some are just momentary, some linger, some of us wrestle deeply with fearfulness of certain things. I thank you, Lord, that you love and value us, not because we're able to beat that, but because you've chosen to love us. And I pray that you would instill in our hearts the knowledge that you are worth more than whatever those fears would threaten to take from us. And that you are at work in a way that means that we will, in the end, have you. Comfort our hearts, still our trepidations, and bring us to yourself. Amen.